0: This is the Scott Bradley Show Podcast.
1: So I'm sure by now you have seen, heard, watched, come across something about the story that broke last night, that there was the, it was an intelligence briefing about President-elect Donald Trump, and it involved Russians, and it involved political impropriety and hacking and personal misbehavior of a particularly gross nature, which I won't get into, But then as today rolled around, there were questions about whether it was true. It seemed as though some of it was discredited, but what part was discredited? We don't really know. And that's really the problem about this whole story. This story seemed to have an awful lot of questions, an awful lot of holes, and even the Washington Post today which had not gone near this story, although they knew about this briefing that apparently had been handed out, they had said, "Uh uh-uh, we're not touching this because we can't verify this. Columnist Margaret Sullivan of the Washington Post wrote this today. She says, where does transparency meet irresponsibility? right at the line that BuzzFeed's editor, BuzzFeed is the name of an online news site that published this 35-page document today, right at the line that BuzzFeed's editor, Ben Smith, approached on Tuesday and decided to step over in the name of serving citizens' best interests. With caveats and explanations aplenty, she writes, Smith published a 35-page dossier, actually just a bunch of scurrilous allegations dressed up as an intelligence report meant to damage Donald Trump. Smith said he did this because his and BuzzFeed's preference and philosophy is essentially, quote, when in doubt, publish. But at many other news organizations, the rule is caution. When in doubt, leave it out. This is a really, really important distinction and a really important point when we're trying to sort out what is true and real and accurate In the world. Uh, Joining me tonight to help work our way through this, uh, a man who knows an awful lot about this because he is in charge of the Hamilton Spectators newsroom. He's the editor in chief of the paper. Paul Burton joins me. Paul, how are you tonight?
2: I'm good, Scott.
1: Let's start with that line that BuzzFeed's Ben Smith, the editor in chief of that particular online publication, said today When in doubt, publish. When you hear that, as a guy who makes decisions and has to pull the trigger on when a story runs or when it doesn't run, what 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 do you think of when you hear someone say that?
2: Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's kind of opposite to uh, to what we would believe at the Hamilton Spectator. If we're in doubt, we wouldn't publish it. Um, we have published things that we haven't been um, absolutely sure of, but we've been reassured or um, convinced or persuaded that. Uh, even though we haven't maybe got the um, proof that they are reasonably um, uh, realistic uh, depictions of the truth.
1: Well, but this, and again, this seems to be, what you're saying seems to be in line with what traditional journalism has been for years and years. I can't, honestly, this is probably the first time I've heard someone publicly say that this is the new motto. When in doubt, just throw it out there and let's see where things where things fall. That that's that seems to be a new position for people to be taking in this industry.
2: Well, I think that uh, everything about the industry is changing, and BuzzFeed is a rather new organization, and a very successful one, uh, as I understand it. Um, the problem is that uh, an organization like the Hamilton Spectator or most other uh, daily newspapers in North America have a... Brand and a reputation that they've spent, uh, you know, upwards of uh, 100 or 200 years uh, developing and protecting. So, to squander it by printing something that you're not sure of, you immediately uh, lose credibility the next time um, you print something, if indeed it turns to be true. If you uh, have gambled correctly, and it turns out to be true. Well, maybe, maybe, it, maybe it helps your brand. I'm not sure, but I would, I would not be sleeping well if I had published something I wasn't. Um, well, I mean, uh, to to be perfectly fair, editors. Don't sleep well regularly, <laughs> but, but um, I would really not be sleeping well if I I didn't have any more evidence than uh, than
1: they appear to have. Okay, so what we're talking about though, Paul, is really between this is the as I'll use the word traditional or the legacy journalism the newspapers and TV stations radio stations and now the online. But I, I'm looking at this today, and I got to be honest with you. Even if Buzzfeed has this one thousand percent wrong, if this thing is an entire hoax. What's the downside to them? And you could say, well, it's their credibility, but I'm finding it hard to believe that even if their credibility is completely shot, people will not go back to that website if the headline is enticing enough or if the thing is shocking enough, then you go, oh, okay, click.
2: Yeah, well, uh, if that's true, and I'm not denying that it might be, it's a really sad comment on, um, you know, if you'll pardon me for for being so... High and mighty on on democracy itself, right? Because I know myself as a reader that I tend to um, uh, not, not spend the time on websites that uh, have let me down or do not seem to be presenting a reasonable um, uh, a, a reasonable reflection of an event, and that, that was um, you could make that. Uh, the case against many mainstream um, newspapers and other media uh, during the uh, U- recent U.S. election. But um, uh, putting that aside, m- most newspapers do try to present a, uh, a you know, a reasonable facsimile of, of reality. And they do try to confirm uh, facts, uh, especially those that uh, might be particularly damaging to a reputation i mean there 's all kinds of examples of uh, editors um, everywhere receiving you know a brown envelope uh, with uh, uh, salacious material in it, which we never print uh, whether or not we believe it is is irrelevant if if you really have no um, if you have really nothing to fall back on you 'd be you 'd you'd, you'd hold on to it and, and a, a very good example of that is the Toronto Star with the Rob Ford video, you know, the, the, the reporter, two reporters saw that video. They knew what they saw, and they believed to be, to be true, and they still sat on that story for quite a while.
1: The, the BuzzFeed story, though numerous times, referred to these as unsubstantiated, and a lot of people would say, well, okay, you're pointing out there, though, then, Paul, that this is unsubstantiated, so you as the reader can sort it out. Doesn't that get you off the hook? We've told you it's unsubstantiated, so deal with it how you wish. No.
2: Irresponsible, and, and and frankly, it's downright nasty. There are all kinds of uh, unsubstantiated views against you and you and me, Scott, which we wouldn't publish because it's they're, because they're unsubstantiated. Saying alleged or unsubstantiated, it doesn't protect you. In some cases, if it's a court case or you know the police are investigating, and I think I think that BuzzFeed is sort of falling back on that because th- 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 these documents were provided to some people in uh, in. Uh, some senators and uh, and, uh, uh, and and those in the White House and Mr. Trump himself.
1: Yeah, so if everybody has it, well, you know, everybody knows already, so here it is. Yeah. Is, is there a difference? Let's say this, and we don't know, and again, this comes back to the problem with this whole story. We Because of this now, we have no idea if this is true or not. But if this thing were to turn out to be a hoax entirely, is there a difference between... Uh, an error, a, a common reporting error, and this, or is there a distinction between those two things? Because newspapers and, and TV stations and radio stations, they make errors.
2: Well, this is more than an error, right? This is a, this is a this is a, a, a terrible mistake and a and a miscarriage of of good journalism. Even if it turns out to be true, even if it turned out to be true. They, 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 they wouldn't get any. They wouldn't. Other media would not forgive them for it. They would still say, "Well, you should have, you should have, ver- you should have done more to verify that." Without, without just sort of marching ahead with it. And, and what is the rush anyway? And and <clears throat> you know sometimes there might be a big story. Uh, you know, lives might be on the line, or you know there might be all kinds of reasons which editors think about when they're thinking, "Why would, uh, why would I publish this?" Well, there are, there aren't very many good reasons to publish this story.
1: Well, why would you publish it quickly? I guess the the only answer I can think of that makes any sense whatsoever, and it doesn't defend it, would be you're in the clickbait business. That your your website and your business model and everything else you have is dependent on the number of people who will click on the story. And so, the more outrageous, the better. And if it's true, well, that's even better.
2: Yeah, uh, it, 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 certainly, uh, in the case of Buzz, Buzzfeed, that there's some there, there there's something to be said there. Uh, they appear to be, you know. First of all, we're in, we're early days here uh, in the in terms of the clickbait era. I, I think it's already past us. Uh, websites are realizing already that readers want a little bit more than just a, a salacious or a sensational headline. They want some. They want stories that deliver as well. Um, so, but. Um, uh, this uh, this this story is obviously giving more than that, and and certainly Buzzfeed has done an excellent job uh, among the new media of uh, generating uh, attention and readers.
1: We saw during the campaign a maybe not exactly similar, but another story that was ridiculous and outrageous, and it was about the other candidate. When we heard about the pedophile sex ring that Hillary Clinton and her people were running, and I'm wondering, Paul, because. That caught traction as well. Do we have? Do you believe that we are more inclined to believe the cra- these crazy stories if we hate the candidate, or less likely to believe it if we dislike them? Is do our politics affect our willingness to believe these stories?
2: Yeah, I don't think that there's any denying that that's um, a, more than a distinct possibility and a, a, a realistic expect uh, expectation. Uh, that that would be the case, but I, I think, the, the, you know, first of all, I mean, we've had lots of eras um, of journalism in, in history where there's all kinds of um, false news and um, uh, bogus reports floating around that people take seriously, but we're certainly in a, in a unique and renewed one at the moment, which is not speaking well of uh, the craft of journalism at all.
1: But if we are willing then if we as a people as a readership are willing more are more likely to believe something that is negative about someone that we dislike does the same extend to the people who would receive the brown envelope. And you say, well, I, you know, if the people at BuzzFeed, and they're clearly not Donald Trump supporters, they don't like him, that's quite clear, they've been speaking out, do you guess then that they may be more likely to believe the story they're putting out? And I'm going to follow that up, I never do this with a back-to-back, but should that then make you more questioning what you've got because you have a bias? Should you be recognizing that and saying, we have to be doubly sure then that we know this is correct because we know we have a bias against the man?
2: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, journalists need journalists need to recognize their biases. We all have them and, uh, and do exactly as you said. They have to be doubly sure that when they're making uh, allegations or printing allegations or printing reports like this, that they know exactly what they're doing and they have a good reason for it. And I'm not, well, I know it didn't exist in this case.
1: Is this, and we just have a minute or two left, but is this the... Unfortunate, but the natural extension that once upon a time I remember watching a, a documentary on CNN by CNN. Um, and they were talking about how you know when, when CNN launched, and I think it was 1980 when Ted Turner put the network on the air for the first time, it really changed the news business because rather than have to hear about a press conference, let's say, you could watch the whole press conference, it was on the air now, and that opened up. The world of news to people and you is this the ultimate or the, the inevitable ending that some people are going to take that opportunity now that everything is available and say, well, you know what now I don't have to even I can I can just throw it out there, even if I don't believe it's right. Because a press conference is one thing. You can you can air a press conference and just turn on the camera and say, here you go. But now you're talking about documents and you're talking about other stuff. But it's the same kind of thing, isn't it? We're just, we're throwing it out there for you people. Figure it out for yourself. Yeah, you
2: know, well, it, 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 it's certainly worse now. And Donald Trump is one of the great, uh, um, he, he, he's one of the worst at doing it. He's, he's uh, speaking all kinds of falsehoods and uh, not backing it up with any proof at all, so I mean he, he 's part of the problem. Uh, the media is part of the p- problem the politicians are part of the problem, and the the consumers of news are part of the problem they 're demanding this kind of thing it 's uh, <laughs> well it 's kind of a vicious circle
1: and so let me put you right on the spot with a question that i don 't know that you have an answer to i don 't know if anyone does and frankly I'd, i 'm probably being unfair to say to try and keep it reasonably concise but how in the world then, if I'm a consumer of the news and I follow this story today and I say, I have no idea now whether this is a true story or not, it depends probably on my politics, how do I wade through what I see, what I hear, what I watch, and come to some time of determination? Because it, it, it seems like it's such a, a, a salad now. We're just throwing everything into the pot and saying, figure it out for yourself.
2: Well, in, in my opinion, on, on this particular one, I think you have to assume it's false until it can be, a, until we get some more proof that it's true. That uh, both uh, Mr. Trump and his lawyer have denied it, and their denial seemed reasonable to me. Um, in, in terms of the in terms of the general reading of, of, or consuming of journalism, I think that uh, consumers, readers, listeners, viewers have to. Uh, read as much as they can. If they've read one story in their favorite newspaper, they should go to their least favorite newspaper and find the same <laughs> story and see what it says. And somewhere in between there, there's probably, uh, there's probably something that's going to guide them better than just uh, whatever the, 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 the latest report on uh, in new media or, or whatever clickbait organization, to use your term.
1: Well, I didn't know if that question could actually be answered in under a minute, but you did. Uh, <laughs> listen, that's uh, Paul Burton, editor-in-chief of the Hamilton Spectator. Thanks for the time tonight. Thank you. It, it, is, a, it is a mishmash. It is really difficult now because here's a story. Let, let's, let's go back just a few years. If, what do we want to say, 20 years ago, back into the 90s, let's go back even, let's go back to the days of Woodward and Bernstein. We're going way back here. If you read a story on the Watergate scandal by Woodward and Bernstein in the Washington Post, if you were alive then, your immediate instinctive burned into your brain response to that was, that is true. It's in the media, it's in the paper, it's by two respected people, it's in a respected publication, it's true. And I would say that that probably existed Well, for many years after that, the problem we have now is that you have so many stories that are popping out and not everybody, not every site, not every journalist, however you wish to describe the word journalist. I'm not going to be pompous about it and say you must be working for a newspaper or a radio station. There are people who work online who are credible, good journalists. However you want to describe it, that's fine. And there are a lot of people online who do great work as well, who may not be classically trained journalists, but the problem is there's also a lot of crap. And because there's so much that's flowing around today, it all kind of gets mixed in together. And then you get a story like this, and I'll tell you what, this story Because even if it turns out to be true, and we don't know, even if it turns out to be true, this will not be a great triumph for BuzzFeed. At least it shouldn't be because they stumbled into this then. They didn't do their due diligence. They didn't substantiate these stories and these rumors. They simply threw it out there. And if it turns out to be right, they lucked out. But BuzzFeed should be getting pummeled for this. They should have nobody following them online because you look at this, and you go, how can you possibly trust even if they get it right? How can you trust them? Because they couldn't tell you that what they were publishing was correct. Here, as I wrap up this segment, here is the most dangerous thing, the most scary thing about this whole thing today. If you are someone who actually truly wants to be able to follow the news and have a sense of what is true, right and what is true and what isn't. Here is what the publisher of BuzzFeed said. He wrote a a quick email to his staff when he explained why they published this today. Here's the last line. Publishing this document was not an easy or simple call and people of good will and may disagree with our choice. But publishing this dossier reflects how we see the job of reporters in 2017. If the job of reporters, no matter who it is, in 2017 is simply getting something and making no real effort to establish whether it's true or not and throwing it out there for people to sort out, people who don't have an intelligence community behind them. You and I don't have the intelligence background, and I don't mean brains. I mean like spying and CIA stuff. If the job is simply to get something, I hear a rumor. Now I'm making this up. There's nothing here. But if I let's say I heard a rumor about Mayor Fred Eisenberger, and I said my job in 2017 is just to write it. I'll let the f- people decide whether or not it's true or not. No, that's not right. That is not what journalism is. That's not what we should be expecting from journalism. What we should be expecting is p- is the people who do this job when they put it down online or on the paper or on this station or on CHCH that you can listen and say they have checked that, and that has now been established to be true, and I can believe it. Otherwise, we can't believe anything. And that's a huge problem that I don't know how we fix. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM
0: 900 CHML.
1: Alex Ovechkin is going to get his 1,000th point in the NHL. 1,000 points. Pretty good. Very good, in fact. Only 83 other people in NHL history have scored 1,000 points. It's pretty good. I mean, 83 is not a tiny number. We're not in Wayne Gretzky territory here, but it's a considering how many people there are who have played in the NHL, 83 is a pretty exclusive club, 1,000-point club. Question is, what does that mean that Alex Ovechkin really is? Does that make him... One of the all-time greats. Now, I suppose you could say if you're in the top 83, you're one of the greats. Well, okay, we'll we'll give you that. But I'm talking the real greats, the elite greats, the guys that you talk about as the, well, when you're talking about the all-time legends of the game, does Alex Ovechkin earn a spot in that particular category? He is unquestionably, we're just waiting to get Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, who's going to join us in just a second. He is unquestionably, I'm talking about now Ovechkin again, not Bubba. He is unquestionably one of the great scorers that we've seen. But I'm wondering if he really is one of the all-time great players, because he is, in a lot of ways, he's one-dimensional. He's very good at that one dimension. There's no question about it. Here's an interesting point that was brought up many, many years ago. You may recall that Alex Ovechkin was taken the year before Sidney Crosby. Do you remember the um, the lockout year happened and so there was no season played and so what they did is they put the team names into a hat and the Pittsburgh Penguins won the right to draft and that was the Sidney Crosby year. And at the time, the possibility was raised or someone threw out the idea and I thought it was a really fun idea since there's been no season let's make the NHL draft way more interesting in the follow-up season when nothing had happened and let's go so the penguins got first pick that's fine or, or when each team got their choice they could keep the guy they took the year before or they could trade him in for another player So if you were the Washington Capitals and you had been able to get Alex Ovechkin, or if you were the Pittsburgh Penguins more accurately, because they had the first pick, would you want to go and take Alex Ovechkin or would you have wanted Sidney Crosby? Well, it turns out, I think that not too many people are going to argue that Sidney Crosby is the better player. I don't think anybody, I don't think there's a person out there who would say, given a choice to draft Sidney Crosby or Alex Ovechkin, that they would take Alex Ovechkin. I don't think there's anybody out there, but maybe there is, but Sidney Crosby is clearly the better player, but where does, where does Alex Ovechkin land in that mix? See, I'm, I'm not of the opinion that he is a top 10 player in NHL history, not even close. I'm not of the opinion that he's a top 20 player in NHL history. I'm not positive that I would put him in the top 30 players. In fact, I'm quite sure I would not put him in the top 30 players in NHL history. I think you could find 30 other guys, at least, who I would say are better players overall and more significant players. We have tracked down the elusive Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Bubba, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, bud. Nice to see you. We are talking about. about Alex Ovechkin, who is going to get his thousandth point tonight or tomorrow or the next night, whenever it is, and where he stands in the pantheon of all-time NHL greats. And I was just explaining that I think he does one thing exceptionally well, and that is score. He's a great scorer, and that's a good thing to be able to do, for sure. But I would, well, let me start with you. I've said I don't think he's in my top 30 all-time NHL players and maybe not even below that, in chunks of ten. Where would he fall for you? Where would Alex Ovechkin be? There's 83 guys. He'll be the 84th who have a thousand points in their NHL career. Where would he fit in the NHL category for you all time? Well, I, I think
3: uh, when it's all said and done, when his career is done, I, I mean, if you kind of track him to where he's been, where, how he's been going, and you know, if he plays, we'll say five more years. I think he he belongs in the top twenty five, and certainly in the top ten of all all time Russian players to ever play the game. Yes,
1: so, I'll give you that for yeah. sure. I'll give you that.
3: Um, but definitely, his scoring prowess is something that you know. Let's be honest. I mean, if you take the numbers right now, he is the you know the greatest player of of, of our generation right now. Quite honestly,
1: Are you put him ahead of Sidney Crosby.
3: Uh, he's the greatest goal scorer of that generation. Absolutely, in terms of goal scoring.
1: Yep, oh, in ter- okay. In terms of goal scoring, I, I, I grant you that. And again, that's a, that's a very good t- talent to have because it's, you, you need those guys on your team. I just look at him as a guy who is largely a one-dimensional player. And if he's not scoring, you don't get a ton else from Alex Ovechkin. Whereas with Sidney Crosby, you can get an awful... Sidney Crosby will score, he'll assist, he'll back check, he'll do a lot of other things for you.
3: Well, and, and, I mean, and it, it, we could go back 20 years and, or 25 years and do the same thing of what you thought of uh, Wayne Gretzky as opposed to Ma, uh, Mario Lemieux. And I've heard it said that, you know, Wayne Gretzky had the greatest vision of any player of his era. Uh, yet, uh, you know, I've also heard that Mario Lemieux was probably the most offensively talented as well, too, in terms of his control and his, his, his ability to score. So, I mean, those kind of comparisons will go on and on. They are two different types of players. There is no doubt that Sidney is much more of a complete player, uh, probably has always been a better back checker, plays defense better. But I would say that Ovechkin, over the years with different coaching, has developed more of a defensive game, not caught up ice floating as much as he used to be at one time. And, yes, he, there was a time where he was completely one-dimensional, but when you're playing with Barry Trotz, it's impossible to be a one-dimensional player. So he's learned to be a harder checker. And I think when you watch his game, and I've actually had the privilege of actually being on a lot of games live when they check into Buffalo and Toronto, that guy throws his weight around as good, as he's as heavy as a hitter as you'd you'd be shocked. I mean, Sidney definitely can throw his weight around too, but Ovechka's got a big Lower body we will say, and when he hits you he can rock you pretty good
1: uh, I'm going back here to uh what year was this now i'm trying to find it's it's um oh I can, this is this is too old a list. I pulled up the wrong one, so it's not going to be too helpful. I was pulling up a list of the greatest hundred NHL players um by the hockey news. Let me pull up a more current one. This was the one that was done that you and I chatted about I think uh a week or so ago as soon as my computer will load because I as I said I pulled up the wrong one so that did you was know, not too helpful note,
3: Scott, can, can, can you believe what a what a, a scaredy cat move the National Hockey League has made by coming up with this splendid 100 best player list and not even and not even having the guts to rank them
1: I well like you that know at you, all. they I, I agree with you but the NHL is the is the company. The NHL doesn't want to make someone upset, and so I'm, I'm with you. I, that, of course they should have ranked them, but then if they rank them, if the NHL ranks them, then you know, and you make Wayne Gretzky number two, and he's just rejoined the league, and you've now said he's not the best than everyone else, or Bobby Orr, I mean it's a no-win for the NHL. I, I mean, listen, I think we should. I think I mean, we should. The, and N-
3: the NBA had no problem doing it. As long as you have credible people, credible reporters, maybe even general managers, maybe even coaches, to make up a list like that, I mean, I, I just and I think it does nothing but create discussion. I think it's fun, and and I, and I, I was I was stunned that the NHL went this route. I, I find it very highly. I mean, I, I don't even care for the list, quite honestly, because it's, I mean to me, it's like it, it's like okay, yeah, I could have easily just grabbed a, a fifty players or hundred players and said, yeah, these are the best players.
1: Well, and and even if you had done, you know, what they could have done if they were too afraid of insulting or offending anyone to do the list in exact numbers you could do top 10 next 10 you know whatever you could tier 1 tier however you wanted to do it there were ways that you could have you could have picked the the uh, the t- call it the top 10, the terrific 10, the whatever else, who are the Mount Rushmore of the NHL. And then, okay, if you don't want to distinguish between who's whatever, then fine. But then you know what's going to happen? Then the person who's number 11 might be bent out of shape. I, That's all right. That's fun. That's
0: and and, discussion. and I,
1: I agree with you. And I think, but I just look at the NHL and I think, what does the NHL actually do in any particular place that wants to ruffle feathers? Show me where the NHL is interested in ruffling feathers with the exception of continuing to tell Hamilton to screw off. Well, other yeah, than exactly. that,
3: and, and telling Quebec City the, yeah. that that uh, you're ne- you're up next.
1: Other <laughs> than that, th- but it, when it comes down to uh, when it comes down to you know other things, they don't want to ever ruffle feathers. By the way, got a tweet here saying I'm a Crosby homer. I should watch Ovechkin play a few times. Hey, listen, Ovechkin's not a bad player. I'm not arguing Ovechkin's a bad player by any stretch. I'm simply saying, would I put him in my top thirty all time for NHL history? No, no, because of his one dimensional, a great dimension. But I would say that no, I would not put him in my top thirty. But it's a great, great discussion. To have and that's another one. If the NHL, when if they had Baba, in fact, graded these people, you now have these these ongoing these uh, current players, the guys who are still active that you're putting into that mix. Because I think they say what there are eight of them that are going to be uh, eight current players who are on this top hundred list you are now insulting teams you're now insulting fan bases because they'll believe something different. The NHL does not like to rock boat the rock the boat and affect people's ability to spend money. Well, they would rather <laughs> just say here's our best eight now here's their jerseys that are for sale. go get them. We're not going to tell you which is which though
3: Well and, and there's a list of those players that that are not on this list that just just blow me away of active players and you know what? I'm going to ruffle feathers my uh, uh, right here. There are players on that list that have played in you know in a, in a time long gone in the National Hockey League that could not hold the jock straps of some of the players that are on this list that are, are, are present players right now. And I know that there's different equipment. The game has changed.
1: Oh yeah, if you watch the old black and white things on ESPN Classic, the old games, honestly, men's league games now at Shadoke Arena are better than the play at, the, at, the, at that level of play. It was a different different game, but relative to the competition, sure. those were the best players.
3: Sure. I, I, I was hearing a discussion today and that, that the fact that Drew Doughty wasn't on the list and Newsy Lalonde was on the list.
1: <laughs> I was a huge Newsy fan back in the day. I love Newsy. How about Shorty Green? Hamilton, hold the (laughs) Hamilton Tiger. You know, Shorty, I had Shorty's original shirt, the old Hamilton. No, I didn't. Uh, Let's blow through this really quickly because we've just got a couple of minutes. Um, We're roughly at the halfway point of the NHL season. Who's the MVP right now? McDavid, Crosby, Kane, Price, Bobrovsky? Who do you like? Well, I
3: got it down between three guys, and that's probably Bobrovsky because he's been a heavy player. Columbus, who expected this? But a lot of it is his goaltending. They have a very young team that have improved immensely over last season. But last year Bobrovsky was not healthy. This year he is. He's providing unbelievable goaltending, leads the league in victories. I put him ahead of Carey Price right now. Um, I can't not pick Sidney Crosby. His point production, considering he missed, I believe, the first nine games of the year with the concussion-like symptoms, and the production he's put out, the leadership, the fact that he doesn't even play on a line with Malkin, it's unreal the way he's played this year and performed. Um, You talk about being a good two-way player. He certainly does that with the coaching staff. Uh, and he's a great leader as well, too. And I, right behind him is Connor McDavid, who has turned around the fortunes of that club. Uh, the Oilers are possibly in in line for a playoff appearance for the first time in many, many years, and he's just one of those generational players that uh, I, we've only seen the, big, the beginning of how good this guy can be.
1: So I'm going to just skip the next question, which was going to be best goalie, because you already answered it, and I agree with you. Bobrovsky has been the best goalie in the hockey right now, ahead of Price, ahead of Holtby, ahead of Dubnik. By the way, two of those guys played Hamilton. Um, rookie of the year. And here is the. And, and I think it's reasonably easy. It's, it's, be, it's likely between two guys. It's Line A or Matthews. And now that Line A is hurt, it'll probably be Matthews, who if he continues, he'll run away with it. Matthews, Line A, Marner, Nylander are the top four rookie scorers in the NHL. Three of the four top rookie scorers are Maple Leafs, and Hyman and Brown are 13 and 14. You've got five Leafs in the top 14 in NHL rookie scoring. I haven't looked it up, but I will bet everything I own that there has never been that situation before in the history of this club.
3: This is why I keep telling people that, you know, I'm no person to blow smoke uh, around the the Toronto Maple Leafs, but they're doing this rebuild right. Right. they had a a year of waste last year with like guys like P.A. Parento and I could go on and on. I mean, remember it was the last year's disaster, and they were able to sell and acquire draft picks over the last three years. And Lou Lamorello and his boys and Babcock are doing this right, and that's why you have this this swelling of 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 young players that are all fantastic, all understand what it's like to wear the Toronto Maple Leaf jersey, respect it, and are going to be part of this turnaround. And this is why, I'm, I mean, everyone's talking the P-word playoffs this year. I don't want it to happen. I, you shouldn't want it to happen. This is only year, officially year two. This team, I don't, I'm not saying should bottom out, but if they can be 20 points better than they were last year, it's a good thing. And if they can finish probably 12th or 13th or maybe even 11th, get another solid draft pick, I still think they are a, a they're, they're a a solid number one defenseman away from being that playoff team that we haven't seen. We've seen once in the last how many years uh, that crazy year where they played Boston. They still need to continue growing, and I and seeing Austin Matthews again, just like I said with Connor McDavid the guy's unbelievable and he's just gonna get better. And in terms of that comparison to Line a, I think it's I think he wins rookie of the year. Reason why it is easier for a rookie to enter the National Hockey League as a winger than a center. And the responsibilities of Austin Matthews are much more than Patrick Line, who could be your next Ovechkin.
1: Uh, By the way, Austin Matthews has more goals than Ovechkin today. And second thing, you threw me for a loop there, because when you said the P word on a day like today with the political news from the States, I'm I'm glad you decided not to go down that road when you talked about the P word. You really (laughs) had me thinking you were heading in a wrong direction there. Bubba O'Neill, CHCH, (laughs) thanks for the time tonight. Appreciate it. Anytime. What a pleasure. (laughs) You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Ten years ago this month, Steve Jobs, formerly of Apple, the guy who was in charge, you know, with the jeans and the black turtleneck, introduced something, got up on stage, and, you know, he does those Apple product things, got up on stage and introduced something that has either become the greatest gift to the world Or the biggest curse to the world. I'm not sure which one it is yet. I I, I go back and forth on this one. A decade ago this month, he introduced the iPhone. In his words, here is how he described it at that that event. It's a widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet connections device. It has definitely changed us. That device has definitely changed us. It's changed the world. It's changed how we communicate. It has changed a lot of stuff. The question as I go back to it is, is this for the better? Is this for the worse? Let me bring on a guy who you hear usually on this station with Bill Kelly Fridays at 1130 when he does something called Tech Talk. And I haven't had him on before cuz I don't like to poach Bill's guests but I did tonight because there's nobody better to discuss technology and other things like this. Adam Oldfield joins me now. Adam, how are you tonight? I'm doing awesome. How are you doing? Scott? I'm doing very well, thank you. Um you, I was in filling in for Bill the other day. You came in here. I think you had an iPhone. I think you had about seven iPhones. It was a, you you carry around this bank of technology wherever you go. But let's let's start from the very beginning cuz I know you know this device very well. We all do now. This is technologically The iPhone remains, even today, a number, what is it now, seven different versions later, a remarkable, remarkable, groundbreaking piece of technology, does it not?
0: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I would not doubt or put anything negative against the iPhone. And as I said with Bill Kelly on many times, I know he's a big Apple lover, and God bless him for that. And I, I, and I, I can honestly say, I owned the very first generation of the iPhone. I remember... Uh, I was in the States in my office down in Philadelphia, and it was a big craze. I got the first iPhone 2G, and it was on the AT&T network. And there was a couple things that made it really unique, and that was the fact that they had the first completely unlimited data plan. Now, we're going back on the first unlimited data plan going in 2007. I mean, we know what data plans cost today. Well, take a look at what an iPhone was in 2007 on AT&T. Now, it was on the 2G network. Now, to give people perspective here, you would probably know that, Scott. A 2G network is equal to trying to download a one megabyte email in five minutes.
1: It's, it's back to the old days of the dial-up internet.
0: It made dial-up look like high speed. <laughs> it, made, it, it, it made you feel like a 2400 baud modem was, was running on cable. So... I mean, I remember getting this phone thinking, oh, my God, I've got unlimited data. And I drove from uh, when my office in Philadelphia. When I got my car with my first iPhone driving from uh, Hamilton to Philadelphia, I thought I can now easily, uh, and again, this is back before texting and, and driving was illegal, I was driving thinking, I'm going to be able to email, I'll be able to uh, uh, be completely mobile. And what was ironic was I was not able to do squat on this thing i think i drove from new york or from niagara falls to syracuse and i downloaded three emails and i remember thinking to myself this unlimited is garbage who came up with this so anyway that was the first iphone in 2007 and again i remember having a blackberry in canada remember blackberry do you remember that phone
1: oh I, i was yeah i'm vaguely familiar with their work
0: so, I mean, uh, the BlackBerry, uh, you know, was at the time, Basile, who was one of the CEOs, commented uh, around your around the time, which you were just commenting on, on Mr. Jobs' uh, revelation about the phone, the iPhone was so minimal. If you really want to look at the minimalness of what the first iPhone was able to do, I mean, I remember thinking to myself, going home, can't wait to get back on my BlackBerry. And it had... Uh, for example here's one of the features people probably take for granted today and i remember getting my first iphone when you wanted to schedule an appointment with someone in the original iphone you were not able to actually attach anybody's email address so if you wanted to say hey scott let's get uh let's get on and talk tact at eight o'clock sure i'll send you an invite you couldn't do that on the original iphone it was very manual you had to go to your calendar type in the person's name, the address, and then go to your email, enter their information, and then email them separately. That's crazy.
1: Nobody's. and yet, Adam, it was so cool because we had the blackberries before. Absolutely, we knew what those were. But you could type into them and everything. But this was it. The the screen was pretty, and it was it was just touch sensitive, and there were apps. I mean, these new app things. I mean, there was a lot of stuff on this. That whether or not at that moment it was better than BlackBerry, boy, it sure looked cooler than BlackBerry at that moment.
0: You know what made it really cool was the fact that i the iPod was really revolutionary. I mean, the iPod had only been three years old, not even, and so you know we went from this wild, dirt, uh, uh, turn style look or feel from the iPod into this now really cool, simple, easy, functional phone. And I think what really blew the people's socks off, or at least it did mine, was wait a minute, the screen has a keyboard? I'm going to type on the screen? That was what really brought the iPhone to a level which we could look at and go, wow, what is so revolutionary? It had one button, and it also had the ability to type on a keyboard on a screen. That was really what I think revolutionized the whole momentum, because from there, we saw the Android start to take a a foothold. Then we started to see other uh, aspects of of the revolution of the smartphone growing. But really, I mean, uh, I think when we see what was it about the iPhone that really we loved, it was a one button, one button, that's all it took. On the BlackBerry, there was four buttons to try and maneuver a menu. And, And somehow, Apple really took simplifying and re- and you can really see in the craftsmanship what Steve job was able to do. He did it with the Apple um with the with the computer again. If we all remember the mouse having like literally no button, there was only one button on a mouse. He he really simplified it and he did it with the iPhone in 2007.
1: And truth- you 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 touched on it though. He Basically, by doing this, he launched a whole new industry because all the all the other companies. Then BlackBerry was there, but this got all the other companies scrambling to come up with something that was comparable. And even more than that, because every company was quickly able to put something together. This built something, and I still I I, I still have a very difficult time believing that apparently, according to Time Magazine, last year alone north americans spent 20 billion with a b 20 billion dollars on apps basically which means buying nothing you're buying a piece of binary code you get nothing they are. it's 20 billion dollars we're handing to developers essentially for nothing that industry didn't exist before that's now massive yeah and,
0: and, and grow and growing i mean Continuing today, one, it's funny, I was just speaking about this with a client this morning, about where where we've gone with, with app development. And in, when you look at it in 2007, there was less than, I think they said they launched with less than 5,000 apps. I mean, you talk about a billion-dollar industry. We're talking a billion-dollar download, a billion downloads. I mean, uh, there was a gentleman, the story goes, a gentleman in St. Catharines made a million dollars. Uh, true story, and he was working at a and w and he managed with his with with this one job he created on Apple pong. do you remember pong? I do yes, yeah, he created the simple bleep bleep you know two bars and a ball bouncing back and forth, and he made a million dollars off of uh off of creating this very simple basic app and it ba it, it more or less allowed him to make a million dollars today. It would be very challenging to get an app on and be found, and they're struggling right now. One of the biggest things about where Apple revolutionized the app market, they've now created almost a surplus of programs To cut through the clutter is really a challenge, and a lot of big programming companies are really struggling right now in how they can be able to hold the market and get famous or uh, uh, be able to be successful in a software environment on the app store.
1: Well, I mean, you say there were 5,000 they started with. You could go online now, and there are probably 5,000 different flashlight apps just to go on there. and, And so you're right. You almost need an app to figure out what app you want to get. Um, The downside to all this, so this is all great stuff because you can, I mean, even though it was slow, you could leave your house. You had this little personal computer with you that you could theoretically anyway at first and now practically uh, do emails and download stuff online and download music and talk on the phone and have a flashlight and have a camera everywhere you go and all this stuff. That's all great, Adam. The downside, though you, I don't know about you, I'm assuming you because you're a tech guy, you and I and my kids and everyone's kids and we are all completely thoroughly addicted to this now and it has completely changed how we deal with other people as humans we sit at the dining room table with our heads down and we type onto our phone and we go out on a date and our iphone is beside us and if it happens to light up with a text we lose attention of the person we're with and we're looking down going i gotta take this and we we wake up in the morning and the first thing we do is check our email this has changed us completely as a people
0: well i think if we really want to talk about what has changed in respect to what you're referring to I can easily segue that into social media. Social media and the way we've created now through our apps and smart homes and our smart wear, I mean, Apple watches, Android watches, I mean, uh, we all wake up now. They, I think they, statistically, I, I'll have to pull up the numbers to pa- fact it, but to my recollection, I recall it being that people are 60% more likely to pick up their, uh, their smartphone and the first thing they check or get their news from is Facebook. And, you know, as far as what's going on, what's happening, and otherwise. So that, that dependency we're talking about is now been so simplified that we can watch our movies. Uh, you know, I was talking with Bill the other day, not on the iPhone, but Cody, uh, and we're talking about these Android boxes. I mean, really, all it is is a souped-up smartphone. And, you know, when we... Take a look at where, again, revolution from an iPhone from 2007 on the original model to what the new iPhone 8 is. And, Scott, this is exclusive for you, my friend, because I was going to do this with Bill, but you might as well hear it on your show. The new uh, fact of the matter, the iPhone 8, which is going to be coming out next year, one of the key factors on this one is going to be all glass, stainless steel sides, and it's going to have a wireless charger, and it will be as powerful, if not... Uh, strong enough to be equal to a macbook now not a back macbook pro but the power in that iphone will be just as strong as, as a desktop computer or mobile computer then what we you say exactly that we become so dependent? Well, that's because it's a strong to allow us to be able to uh, uh, utilize our phone as, as strong as a computer is today.
1: Well, and what? I, yeah, I mean, Adam, let me ask you: When you walk out of your house, and I'm sure you've done this because I have, and I know what it feels like now. When I walk out of my house those few times, and I suddenly get to my car and I start to drive away, and I realize I've forgotten my phone. What, what's your reaction? Because mine is almost a physical. I'm addicted. I know it. It's almost a physical thing now when I realize that I've broken the connection between me and my phone.
0: You're going to turn around. Let's be clear. You're not going to leave. You're going to turn around, and you'll call work when you get your phone to say you're late. Now, in my case, Scott, I have a watch that literally, when it disconnects, starts to vibrate my arm, and my car won't start unless my phone's inside the car. So I can't really relate to what you're referring to.
1: Go for a walk. If you go for a walk without it, but you, you still can't.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I, I always, I I have the ability to be able to tell me. Now, I even have it to the fact of where did I put my phone? Now I I can sign in and see, oh, good, it's still within the house. And by the way, all smartphones have that ability to track and monitor where and what your phone is doing and where it's located and everything else, right? So, you know, when when we take a look at where we've gone in the world in respects to our smartphones and what they're doing for us, even to this day, I mean, we can see that they're becoming literally mobile. Uh, well, I think we talked about this uh, on Bill Kelly one time. In the United States, they've actually warrant. you need a warrant to be able to, to confiscate someone's phone. And that's why they say you need to put a code or a, a, a security, uh, uh, your fingerprint. The new iris scanners are going to be very factor in the new future. But you need a warrant to be able to access someone's phone. We have so much of our lives integrated into it. It's oh, yeah. Everyone where it's going, what it's doing. I mean, really, when you think Google Maps compared to, well, Google Maps didn't even really exist back when the first iPhone came out. So Google Maps to this day knows where and anticipates how long it will take you to get somewhere. will tell you the traffic. And it's your mobile GPS system. Back in 2007, you needed a GPS
1: in addition to your phone. Today, Well, yeah, it's, Adam, it's killed a while it's built industries. While it's built the apps, it's killed the the fo the camera business has to be seriously hurting because of iPhones and smartphones. The GPS business that was seemed like it was going great guns has to be hurt. The individual, not the ones built into your car, but the ones you would attach to your car, because you now have Google Maps. There's a bunch of different businesses that have probably been just kicked in the stomach by the iPhone and other smartphones because it's killed those off.
0: Well. It, it, you, you've hit it perfectly. You're right. I mean, in 2007, we were still developing film. Yeah, <laughs> you were. You, I mean, really, we were taking. There was high-end digital cameras, and we would still go to Walmart and develop your film. And it only it was only a matter till. Uh, I mean, Kodak only really hit a financial struggle in 2009. Kodak the number one, you know, and, and really to this day we can see that where the camera is now being compared to a Canon or otherwise, um, you know, and, and I know photographers that are very much in tune, there is a very significant difference between a, a smartphone camera to what you can actually have a high-powered professional photographer. Um, you know, the, the key thing is, though, for the average general user, I mean, well, I mean, right now, by the way, you know, Scott, I'm using my cell phones to be in my iPad, and I'm, you know, we're, we're speaking live on 900CHML. We're also live on Facebook. I mean, these are little mobile camera systems now, right? So when you take a look at what the power of what they've been able to do is hey, it can take a picture. Uh, and again, just as a side note, the original smartphone, we're talking about iPhones and the revolutionary, they didn't even have a camera. on the the original iPhone to be able to do film. They could take a picture, but they weren't originally able to actually have a camera inside and take a picture or a a full video. You could only take stills, uh, quick low-res pictures. That That, was about the extent of it.
1: That's because they weren't thick enough to put the film inside yet. (laughs) Just before, we got about a minute left here, Adam, but here's the weird thing to me about this, and maybe it's not weird. I don't know. Maybe I've just become so used to advances that... Yeah. Since th- this was an absolutely earth-shattering thing that happened, and again, the, the the original ones were rudimentary by comparison, but they were. It was still a really transformative yep. kind of piece of technology. But since then. We've got the iPads, which are basically larger versions of the iPhone, minus the phone part in a lot of cases. We've got the Apple TV, which is really big versions of it. Uh, We've got the watches. You talked about the iWatch, which is a a miniature version of it, but there's not been that kind of thing. There's been incremental growth in it, but there's not been that development, that invention of that thing that would match this on the level of things that have changed our planet. We're in it seems like we're in a bit of a pause as far as waiting for that next dynamic amazing thing that will appear. Why is that?
0: Uh, well, I think what we've done again to talk about a phenomenon in respects to we knew that smartphones were already successful. BlackBerry was very successful at that mark. What are we missing in respects to well that revolution or that I think what you're referring to is that that product that has really taken it to a new level and again like you mentioned the iPad came out it was a phenomenon it was it was a it was a, it was a kick uh, it was something of which we could all connect with and and, and relate to really we just still have to per- we have to perfect it and obviously uh, with all due respect to Samsung they haven't been able to master that with the Note sevens. Uh, catastrophe that happened a year ago i think what we're going to see is and and by the way it's coming next year we're going to see that with the new note eight the s eight and the iphone eight they're going to become the next revolutionary point is going to be the phone will replace the desktop computer and i think we're going to see four k uh... four thousand resolution which is going to be almost depth and almost blu-ray quality in our smartphones we're only going to see them get better with the hardware itself and i think The tribute, the man that actually, which we started this segment, Steve Jobs, he had a vision that was really taking the risk of which we as consumers, we always wanted it, thought of it, and we wanted simplicity to really make it work for us. I think what we need is someone like him to be able to come up with something that we can actually go, yes, we would love to see that. We would want that. And I believe right now we're having a very big struggle with the key companies in the market to be able to do that. I hope that we can see it with Apple, but I really don't know if Cook is the guy to be able to do that.
1: I I await the invention by Adam Oldfield that will change the world as we know it.
0: It is coming. I have yet to be able to announce it, but I assure you it is coming and it's not going to be too long before you hear about it. But I'm actually excited. I will have something that is uniquely ours, made in Hamilton by my company, and I will be making an announcement in the next couple of weeks on that.
1: Well, perfect. And you can hear Adam every Friday, 1130 Tech Talk with Bill Kelly. Adam, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Awesome.
0: Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it.
1: I, I, I'm not making it up. I, I wish I was. I truly wish that I did not have that connect now to my phone where I walk out of the house and I realize it's not with me and I almost feel like something is missing. I wish that that was not the case, but I do. And I bet you that a lot of you, if you're being absolutely truthful, do as well. Not everybody, but for many of you, I'm betting that if you walk out, there is a physical clenching when you realize that you are separated from your communications device something I got to work on. I should have made a New Year's resolution even though I don't do those. That would have been a good one. Break the habit somehow. I just don't know how. Steve Jobs, you won. You you have made me an addict. You win. I'm going to work on it, but you win. You got me.
0: The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.